Hi, and welcome to the Slush Podcast. As you probably know, Slush is the world's leading startup event. You're about to hear an interview conducted at Slush 2017 on the Founder Studio stage, where the biggest names in tech sit down for an intimate Q&A. Zach Klein is the co-founder and CEO of DIY. It is a safe online community for kids to discover new passions, level up their skills, and meet fearless geeks just like them. He was interviewed by Linda Liukas. So let's start with the first question over here. What do you think about the current schools in Finland? It's a broad question. Yeah, I, I've only been in Finland for 72 hours, so I, I, I don't have uh, enough experience that I think makes me qualified to give an answer. But I mean, obviously, in uh, Linda, please chime in if you have opinions that you think are worthy of sharing uh, in this context. Yeah, obviously, in America, we, we always hold up Finland as um, an example of an incredible uh, education system. Um, and I, I'm fascinated to explore uh, how and why uh, It, it has achieved its excellence. Um, something that I find interesting, though, is, is uh, you know, I'm curious to learn from Finns themselves how they feel that system falls short because these rankings are often based on the PISA uh, system, uh, which doesn't necessarily uh, prioritize creativity or innovation. And uh, in the long run, this may put Finland at a disadvantage if it continues to emphasize uh, uh, those skills over others that are already outdated to some extent yeah that's fascinating and also the beautiful system we have that praises equity over excellence uh, might not be suitable for breeding the next elon musks and, and mark zuckerbergs of the world right uh exactly systems that that uh, tend to prioritize uh, equity um while very noble often don't necessarily serve the best interests of outliers who have very specific interests or learning needs. So all the weirdos in the room, like, <laughs> this is the place for you. Uh, there's a question about, like, um, technologies, and we didn't have a get, get a chance to really talk about technologies that much. We talked a little bit about web and online learning. There's a question about uh, thinking of technologies that are helpful for children to thrive in the future. Are 3D designing, 3D printing, or robotics serving this purpose? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I think all of those technologies are exciting because they, at very least, are much better user experiences for old technologies that have existed uh, for a long time. They've helped demystify what was once, what, what, what were once complex industrial processes and made them user-friendly. Uh, I think closing the gap, uh, making it possible for more people, specifically more children, to feel capable of doing things that once felt uh, were only capable of large industries. Oh, I love that. Empowering kids. There's two questions that kind of have to do with building a product for kids and also uh, like targeting products for kids. Uh, the other question is, what are the biggest challenge challenges to grow, grow children targeted products? Uh, so probably about like uh, advertisement and, and so forth. And then the other question around kind of the same topic is, do you think children under 13 are ready to actively participate to social digital activities? Why Facebook limits children's age to 13 years to start using it? And maybe you can talk about your experience with DIY. Uh, yeah, so one of the hardest things about 
about working on any child-oriented services online uh, is safety and privacy. So there are far different expectations for protecting the identities and data uh, and permissions for, you know, for children. And it's extremely complex because parents have much different attitudes for a seven-year-old and 13-year-old. So there's questions as to what is a child at all. <laughs> Epistemotology. Uh, nice. Yeah, and in America, we have a law called COPPA, which uh, uh, places strict um, regulations on any um, service that allows a kid to share their identity and uh, basically requires that a parent give their permission with very explicit means. And that makes it really difficult. I mean, it, it, it's a reasonable regulation, but it makes it very difficult for, uh, for startups to gain traction in the education space. One practical thing you guys do, though, is like you don't have profile pictures. You have something else on DIY. That's right. So we, uh, we make every kid invent an identity. That's, that's one of the ways that we help get around this. Um, the other question was, are 13-year-old, children under 13 uh, ready for online? So the way that I feel about that is uh, uh, maybe not, but they, most children under 13 are living in households with adults who are addicted to technology. And I think it's more warped for parents to continue using technology in front of their children and not simultaneously teach their children good habits using that same technology. Uh, prohibition has been proven not to work. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so, I, you know, I, I think I would rather teach my children as long as they're, they're sort of able to be autonomous with this tech, just how to be responsible with it and slowly give them responsibility so that they're, at no point in their life is it a sudden shock to finally be exposed to it. So what are some practical examples of this responsibility or this uh, way you're like teaching kids autonomy online or with technology? Well, so like a graduate system, like my wife and I, and, and by the way, I, I, although I run a children's website, I'm, I'm very careful not to give anyone parenting advice. And that's why <laughs> this question is challenging for me because I, I, do, I believe that there are many strategies and, and I don't advocate for any particular one. But for example, you know, my wife and I find it impossible not to let our, our daughter, who's four, uh, watch movies. But we make a rule that, uh, that we have to use the iPad with her. She could, we would never leave her alone with an iPad, uh, but if she wanted to watch a movie, then we would sit there with her so that she's learning that it's a, it's a in-person social experience. The tech is a tool, not an escape and we're using this tool together as a family. That's fascinating. Do you think there's going to be more, like, more of technology that um, like helps people use it together? Because I have these childhood memories of playing Nintendo with my little brother, yeah. and it was a very social experience as opposed to like, a lonely uh, experience. Well, I mean, I, I, I like using tech alone, and I, and I also like using it together, but I, you know, for children, I think, uh, especially while they're still learning how to use it, it's important that you start by using forms of technology that is social. Cool. So Finland being a country where we have education, we have technology. Uh, the next question comes from an app developer over here, um, our kid tech startup. Uh, how do you attract your first uh, thousand active daily users? Uh, well, the best piece of advice that I could give any entrepreneur, um, especially in the, the kid space, is to choose your users. Don't let your first thousand users choose you. 
your first thousand and especially your first 10,000 will absolutely dictate the, the culture and DNA of your service. So uh, if you have a particular strategy or like learning philosophy or pedagogy in mind for your, your kid or ed tech business, it's important that you, that you carefully find those parents that, uh, that uh, who have feelings that resonate with your own. So how, how did it look like for you when you were starting DIY.org? Like, did you have a philosophy or how did you pick your, pick or gather your first uh, thousand users? Yeah, I mean, th that actually wasn't the hardest part about building our business. I mean, there's especially, y y just like any, you know, any topic, uh, there are parents that already exist that are really active, that play an active role in their children's education. And they are aggressively seeking yes. solutions. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it was just as simple as us putting up our flag and having really clear uh, descriptions of what we're about so that parents could decide whether or not this is the right thing for them. Uh, I think we'll open it up to the sort of traditional channel of, of asking questions. If you have a question, raise your hand and one of the team members over here will throw you a catch box and you can ask a question. So there's this uh, STEM to STEAM movement that is including arts in this, art, in this curriculum. Many educators try to, even in the public sector, try to find some you know, courses, uh, being curricula that also include this artistic designing component into everyday education, blending it with sciences, technology. Is it like, will it make a mainstream, so to say, or not necessarily? Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating how both of those, STEM and STEAM, does everyone familiar with STEM and STEAM? No? All right. So uh, STEM is a really popular learning strategy. I don't know about in Finland or the rest of the world, but extremely popular in the States um, to emphasize science, tech, engineering, and math. Um, and now there's a competing movement called STEAM, which is science, uh, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And I think both of these are lagging behind what we've actually seen in this community in entrepreneurship. In the first wave of Silicon Valley success, uh, most businesses were hard tech businesses. And so schools developed a strategy um, to take advantage of that like, economic uh, uh, explosion by, by focusing children on hard tech. But then what happened in the last 10 years was that there was a move to create uh, tech companies that had great product design. And you were seeing a lot of successful entrepreneurs that came from creative backgrounds. So then schools have now been adjusting their strategies to include art and creativity because for the first time in a probably ever, uh, there is some strong correlation that having creative skills is a competitive economic advantage. And it's fascinating because I don't think the research actually thinks it's a new thing. When you look at the work of Seymour Poppert or Jean Piaget, like in the 60s, people were actually much more relaxed about the sort of definitions of what is technology and creativity and how we ought to be teaching these skills for kids. If you want to have uh uh, an awesome long read, I highly recommend that you read the Wikipedia article for creativity. Uh, it turns out Can that... Can you summarize for us a few points? Yeah. The idea of creativity is actually an extremely modern one, uh, like last few hundred years. You know, up until the Renaissance, people believed that, that new ideas were given to us by the gods. So the idea that, that you could be the owner and sole inventor of an idea is fairly modern. So. Uh, it's, I think it's taken us a long time to sort of internalize that uh, having the confidence of 
having our own ideas and acting on our own ideas to create an economic livelihood for ourselves is fairly recent. Even if you know, people in history were creative, I don't think that they were necessarily acknowledged as much. There's kind of two questions around the topic of startups and so forth around retention. So how do you engage children to stay in your platform and what is your secret recipe? And then also how do you get children hooked on using DIY and sustain their usage after a few first times of using it? That's an awesome question. I, I, I'm glad I have an opportunity to talk about this because this was extremely confusing for me because I, you know, prior to DIY, I was working on Vimeo and we judged our success by how often people came to, video, to Vimeo to watch videos, right? Fairly straightforward. Most companies do the same. Uh, we had this confusing like, data set uh, at DIY where we, parents and kids would rate their experience with us very highly, but we had a really low return rate. And uh, that, was, that was just very difficult for us to reconcile. Well, it turns out that uh, there's two things at play. Um, uh, uh, one, kids are extremely busy. Like, they have to go to school. And, <laughs> and parents are often staging, like, when they can use technology. So even if they were passionate and engaged, they can't use it at the rate that, that adults use uh, services. So um, uh, we had that issue. The second was, the cool thing about what we do at DIY and Jam is we're all about helping kids learn skills in the real space. There's nothing to do on DIY other than uh, watch videos that teach you how to go do something in the real world. So if you, you know, are learning uh, uh, how to use a you know, 3D printer, you, you learn on DIY, but then you have to go spend hours you know, at a desktop somewhere, Doing right? Things. So there's a long lag period between when they discover something and then when they come back to share it. So what do retention metrics then look like for an edtech startup, in your so opinion? For, I mean, for us in the edtech space, you know, it's, uh, well, here's what I'll say. For most edtech companies, the, the like what engagement looks like or what success looks like is your ability to improve a kid's report card or the ability to get the kid into the college that they want to go to, right? For us, that's a little hard because we actually focus on subjects that have nothing to do with school. And yet. Yet. So we don't make those promises. So for us, it's about, we measure success by how curious kids are. We measure how many different... Oh, how do you measure curiosity? That's amazing. Well... Is um, it like how many things you choose or how deep you yeah, go? So, or? I would say all of us grew up in a schooling system that encouraged us to be monogamous with a skill set. Like we were basically told, yeah, you can try a lot of skills, you can date, but when you turn 20, you better pick one to spend the rest of your life with. And I, I want to have a threesome <laughs> with skills, you know, like um, there's like a lot of things that I want to try. I'm not ready to settle. Uh, and you know, I, think, I think that's what's, uh, that's how we measure it. How, how, what's our ability to keep kids interested in multiple skills at once and also keep adding new skills to their uh, repertoire? Yeah, and that kind of goes back to the having the philosophy and, and uh, like thinking uh, ideals in place prior to starting the company or, or so forth. Yes. That's a value already. Um, there's a question, and, and you mentioned on the stage before that you want to maybe one day start a physical school, then that online learning is a great, uh, like a 
another great way to learn, but there is nothing that really replaces the face-to-face -face interaction. There is someone who asks the question, what do you think about everything becoming electronic in schools? Uh, I mean, students st studying on computers, virtual books. Well, I guess I would say that I, I look at I look at these you know computers and tablets as as tools. I don't see them as the experience themselves. I think they're they're assisting us to have <clears throat> more meaningful, more effective in-person experiences with our peers and our mentors. Uh, I, I think it's highly unlikely that we'll that we'll go to a place where we go to a classroom where we're just sitting in front of a screen. I, in, in, I mean, I, I guess I could see that happening in some schooling systems, but, but everything I've like, studied still shows that face-to-face like, -face, uh, collaboration and learning is still more effective than one-dimensional absorption of content. So the, like, the best schooling systems will continue to deploy both uh, digital tools and uh, analog tools. And we don't know whether like the future computers will have screens on them or whether they will be embedded around us or, or how they'll work. I, I think, yeah, it's a fascinating concept of like the, the screen time and our obsession with it. What Maybe I it's a problem for our generation, not the next one. This is somewhat related and I don't have an answer to this. What I'm interested, I'm, I'm curious to know what the crowd, uh, the audience believes, but you know, I'm interested to know like, is it important for us to keep studying advanced math if we have tools that can perform those functions for us easily. It's like, it's somewhat, you could argue it's a somewhat vain exercise. I mean, it's important to understand the, 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 the functions of math, you know, the underpinning of mathematical theory. But, but if a kid or an adult has the technology to perform that function rapidly. Yeah, like Wolfram Alpha is all Using a tool. Today. Yeah. Why, you know, should they continue to spend so much time studying um, the long form, you know, mathematical function. Yeah, and computers are always going to be better at calculating things than we are. So right, it's, a, so it's an unfair match. It's a rigged match already. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a question that has been really popular and upvoted over here, and it still has to do with the product side of um, your business. What kind of data do you collect from your users? Okay, so uh, we the only the only personal data that we collect is their their birthday, because in America, we, we actually are, like I said before, we're beholden to certain rules if a child is under the age of 13. Um, so we, we know that, and uh, we obviously collect their IP address, so we have some idea of their location. Uh, we ask them to create an identity. That can technically be as real or as fake. Is as it still the animals? Uh, it's still, well, we have, we've added more, but it used to okay. be just animal faces, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, the, but the, mo the complex thing is that we actually, and I, there's not too many services like ours, I can't think of another one that's as open as we are, but kids can upload anything they want. So, you know, they, they will upload themselves telling a story in their bedroom, right? Um, so it's it is extremely vulnerable and, and definitely counter to a lot of parents' ideas of what is real. I mean, I'm sorry, what is uh, a reasonable level of privacy? But I, again, echoing what I said earlier, I, I, I really don't think that we should prohibit this sort of experience um, uh, so, uh, you know, at this stage in their lives. I think that this is, um, you know, there was a, this is an amazing statistic. Uh, Facebook actually makes you check a box that says that you're 13 or older. But 30% of American children aged 10 to 13 have Facebook profiles. Right, so 
it, it's hap like they're going to find a workaround, and I would rather them do it in a transparent, illuminated way. You know, there's that, that saying, sunshine is the best disinfectant. I would, love that. <laughs> I would rather we organize their, like, and, and play some role in helping them establish a public identity rather than, than, than basically forcing them to surreptitiously use adult platforms to do it. I, I want to talk a little bit further about their identity and, and like, helping kids shape their identities and maybe like discover and try new identities before settling into that one Facebook profile that defines who you are. Because again, I was lucky enough to grow up online in a world where uh, there was anonymity and I could be a boy or a girl or a raccoon. Uh, one of my favorite identities was this identity of a Jedi Knight called Sabe Sunrider. And I could be something that I wasn't in the classroom. I could be fearless and bold and, and stuff like that. Where do you see the web going and sort of these online identities we have, especially when it comes to the next generation? So that's a great question. And it, it actually very directly relates to why I'm working on what I'm working. So at Vimeo, we did not, when we created that, we were, did not think we were creating a video sharing site where you would go to watch viral videos. It was a community online where video was the currency of expressing yourself. And we think video is powerful because unlike photos where it's easy to, to create a one-dimensional version of yourself, it is hard to betray video. Video is like has a, like a strange ability at capturing our essence. And when you upload video of yourself, um, it, it, you're extremely vulnerable. I think far more vulnerable than you are in a photo. And so what we noticed as a result is in a community where everyone's sharing video and everyone is making themselves vulnerable, we had a higher rate of respect and kindness. And so one of the things I was thinking about after Vimeo was, you know, how can, how can, what else can I do with these sort of insights? What, uh, what other communities could I create knowing how vulnerability can lead to just uh, uh, higher levels of mutual respect online, which is rare. So, uh, you know, one of my thoughts was, I, I wondered if we could make learning more compelling uh, online if we could first figure out how to allow people to be more vulnerable with each other. Because I actually think that that is the single uh, biggest gating factor that's keeping adults from re-educating themselves uh, uh, in life. Because we spend an entire lifetime creating a strong version of ourselves that's an expert. And, and it's embarrassing, especially in front of people who work for us, to put ourselves in a position where we're beginners and we fail. So uh, imagine if that culture, what if we didn't feel that way? What if we felt completely comfortable failing in front of each other? Like it just, that, we could wave a wand and that was true in the world. I think we would all be learning a lot more out in the open. Absolutely. And, and so one of the advantages of encouraging children and adults to have anonymous identities online is that it, it, it leads to a higher rate of vulnerability, which uh, can create better conditions for people to try and fail. So there's kind of like the dark side of vulnerability and our second to final question has to do with that. Um, how kids can be safe from cyberbullying or how the cyberbullying can be prevented? It can't be prevented. Um, we, this is something we, we, we talk to parents about a lot. Uh, when they let their kids on the internet, well, 
we feel strongly that we need to condition parents to understand that the internet isn't a utopia. There are people who are trying to create utopias, but the internet is subject to the same laws that make public spaces public spaces in the real space. If you let your kid be anywhere on the internet, they are likely to run into disturbing realities, the same disturbing realities that you would experience walking in New York City on your way to the subway. So uh, we, we try to just adopt a policy that is uh, more focused on helping kids deal with that bullying rather than pretending like it could never exist. Um, that said, we do have a very low rate of bullying. Uh, we, this is something we measure. We built our own you know, software that detects the sentiment of statements made uh, on DIY. And it, we had to build this so that we could flag stuff. Um, that's just like a first measure of filtering messages that get shared. Um, and we have a, what we call internally a 99.9% .9 kindness rate. So that's the rate at which of the number of uh, percentage of messages that get shared that have a neutral or positive intent. Oh, I wish the internet would have a 99% kindness rate. Um, but, I, but again, I think we are able to achieve that by forcing people to be vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, final question comes from a father of two preschool girls. How can he best help them to be successful in their upcoming future? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm not sure if everyone here was able to, uh, um, to be in the audience earlier when Linda and I spoke on this, but I, you know, I, I would like to just repeat the advice or the philosophy that's guiding my own parenting and my own entrepreneurship in this space, uh, which is um, we have to resist the urge, I think, to overindulge or overspecify that our children should pursue the one thing that they're good at that tends to be like a dominant teaching and parenting strategy, at least in the past couple generations, because it, for a while it was a winning strategy. Get as good as you can at one thing, be a rocket ship, and be better than everyone else at one thing. But given that we no longer live in an era where you can be uh, successful at one thing and build an entire lifetime on it, like we, we are going to have multiple careers and livelihoods in our lifetime. That is true for this generation and especially true for our children. I think we need to encourage them more than anything to just keep trying and failing. Never, you have to stay familiar with what failure feels like. Uh, because uh, what we want to do to protect ourselves, because we're delicate, uh, we tend to put ourselves in position not to fail. We tend to put ourselves further and further away from risky things because it makes us feel pain to, to to acknowledge um, uh, uh, a failure. And, 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 and I would love to see a generation of children who didn't have that stigma. Love it. Be a library, don't be a rocket ship, <laughs> and so forth. I think this was the last session of the QA stage today. Thank you so much, Zach, and enjoy sure. the rest of Slush. Thanks for listening to the Slush podcast. Find out more about Slush at slush.org. Please rate and review our podcast. And if you haven't yet done so, subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.